Welcome to episode number 38 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring directors Ben Safdie and Joshua Safdie of the new film Heaven Knows What, which is opening in limited release on May 29th from TWC Radius. Heaven Knows What tells the story of a young heroin addict in New York City, played by Ariel Holmes. The film follows her struggle and descent into addiction, which is based on Ariel Holmes' real-life heroin addiction, which was also chronicled in Ariel's book, Heaven Knows What. Ben Safdie and Joshua Safdie take us through their bare-bones production process, which was filmed all through the streets of New York City. With many non-professional actors, including Ariel Holmes, who makes her feature film acting debut in this film. We'll also learn about Joshua Safdie's initial meeting with Ariel Holmes and what he saw in Ariel that inspired him to use her in this film as well as use many of her real-life stories as inspiration. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you can also write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. By engaging with us on social media, you'll also be entered into a contest to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by our friends at Final Draft. And now we join directors Ben Safty and Joshua Safty as they take us through their initial conception of making this new film, Heaven Knows What. First, I was wondering kind of how you guys met Ariel Holmes and uh, also on top of that, sort of what drove you to use her as an actress in the film as opposed to sort of branching out and bringing in an actress to play her. Uh, yeah, I met Ariel um, on, in the Diamond District while I was doing, a, um, uh, doing research for another film. And I met her, and I, I met her, and she was in a beautiful dress, which I later found out that was a dress she spent all of her money on. And her hair was clean, which she washed that morning in a public bathroom. And she slept, which she woke up to and went to from the steps of a Buddhist church. So I had, I just met this girl, and I said, oh, there's an amazing movie star. And, uh, and I, I wanted to put her in the other film. And then when I got to know her, we became friends, and I learned about the street junkiedom and about Ilya. I just, you know, I don't know, we had, we got along, we clicked, and we wanted to hang out more, so I just got to know her very well. And the more I got to know her, the more, you know, of a star I actually saw she was, and, and uh, yeah, I wanted to, uh, and, I, and then, you know, I actually, exp- I, was a, I, had, I witnessed the suicide attempt, not personally, but I was, like, in her life at that moment, and, uh, and then... So that happened right after you had Three months her. after wow. I met, two months after I met her, and, uh, and then I had pushed her to write her story down and there was it was never really a uh, decision to to cast her to play this role it was the decision was to make this movie with this girl and uh and the the movie that would come to be from that would be dictated by the stories that she wrote that I commissioned her to write which became her book and so, even her, her comfort level with other people you know was she was really a, a soundboard you know we would have to like bounce things off of her if she of people in the if we were going to cast somebody to be a person they needed to fit her idea of who that person was talking about casting people around her not her Uh, and um, so it was interesting did she was she very open with you about sort of revealing such personal details about her life we were again we were very close and 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 when I asked her to start writing the book I had explained to her it would be with the intention of adapting it to be a movie 
uh, because I was trying, you know, we were trying to do this other movie and the other one kind of, we just, this just, her life consumed me and, and, uh, and I said to her, I said, this, these stories are so insane. Like this is, this should be a movie. And, and she agreed and, and, uh, you know, she has no qualms about sharing her life at all. I mean, except for the fact that, you know, she had a hustles going on that she didn't want to blow up. But in the end, she doesn't, Ariel, what makes her such a star is that she doesn't give a fuck about what anybody has to say or think. I mean, it's also scary. She literally doesn't care about anybody because forever nobody cared about her. So that's what allows her to have this kind of star presence because true stars don't give a fuck. And, yeah. you know, and at this day and age is even more rare because people are so politically correct and this and that. And they don't want to say that she doesn't care. She doesn't care what you have to think about her. And therefore, it makes you want to think about her even more. I was curious, where is she originally from? From New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And is Bayonne, New Jersey. What was kind of her socioeconomic background? Was she... Um... So she was actually born in Los Angeles, weirdly. Really? She was born in... Yeah. Her mom and her and her really, really young dad, this Irish guy, they... Uh, lived here and then there was an earthquake and then they freaked out and she he moved back to ireland and she the mom moved to um and he works at a factory now and the mom was a has had a bad drug and alcohol problem and yeah i mean she was a poor girl from bayonne new jersey and she dropped out of high school at 15 and like her mom was and she smoked crack with her mom at 12 years old for the first time and you know was fighting with like crazy and the parent the aunts and uncles were like you could stay with us but they didn't really care they did to some degree and eventually she just the allure of new york city kicked in and she started going to new york all the time and then she was like my fucking house sucks my mom's a nightmare her mom died actually four months before i met her mm-hmm. and uh she didn't she didn't even mean anything to her when, when when she died which is crazy and uh yeah and then she met Ilya. so from the point of sort of logging in her story she writes them down for you uh, what was kind of your concept production-wise of putting together the film? Because from what I see, it's very much like in the streets of New York, very bare bones. Is would we that wanted, be we wanted, yeah, we wanted yeah. form to follow function. So whatever the movie would, we you want basically your concept and your your star and your story is at the center, and then as it as you build it out and it becomes a movie, it becomes this tree and you want like all the leaves to be indicative of that initial idea and concept. We couldn't, so you have, couldn't make this yeah. movie for millions of dollars. You, could, you just yeah, couldn't like do if it. You, if you had a big giant trailer parked at the end of the block, it would throw everything off. We, granted, that we shot the film in a very professional way. We had permits, we shot it on tripods, we had very long lenses to kind of... And there was a, give almost a Hollywood structure to the yeah. way we shot it in like, you know, all right, seven or eight takes yeah and And, but at the same time schedule was very strict we wanted the city to live within the frame so the the city was going to give the movement to the to the image and in order to do that you need to make sure that the city can move in front and move around and we didn't want to block off streets and we didn't want to have that kind of level to the film because it would have killed the energy and it wouldn't have allowed it to happen so yeah what kind of cameras did you guys use Uh, I shot on Sony F3s Okay. Digital cameras. But I mean, the camera is just the recording device. Like you, whether it's 35 millimeter or an iPhone, it's all about, you know, the way you're shooting your movie, which is the lenses and the, the filtration, which was a really it's arduous steady. process yeah. of developing lots and lots of glass filtration and sometimes 2,000, 1,800 millimeter lenses and, and shooting also, your close-ups from a block and a half away. Yeah. 
right. et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. also just, yeah, the style that you shoot it in, you know, handheld versus tripod. It's like the, the last film, the fiction film we made was all handheld, but that was out of necessity. We were shooting with two brothers who had never acted before. They were kids. They were wild. We needed to be able to capture them in any way, shape, or form. Here, it would almost make sense to shoot it handheld. It like, doesn't make sense to do it the way we did it because it made yeah. it so much harder. But that adds a, a, another layer to it, another, another viewing point. Yeah. Uh, are you guys very clear about sort of planning out shots yes. or storyboards or visual conceptions? I, I don't draw lenses, storyboards, uh, but I do. Um, I write out every shot, the description of a shot. And um, a lot of this movie was shot with two cameras, so that made it more difficult because I had to monitor two cameras at the same time. But uh, yeah, I mean, we. <clears throat> the way I, the way Sean works is he's very intuitive. You know, he cut his teeth with Albert Mazel's, his, cinema, his cinematographer. Rest in peace, Albert Mazel's. But he, so he's very intuitive, and he can kind of. And I, you know, I was looking forward to that kind of relationship with him, that collaboration with him. But I had very specific ideas for different shots and different angles of which we wanted to see these people. Yeah, but block out the coverage of everything beforehand, and then yeah. kind of you allow yourself to be. Just kind of surprised by the locations a little bit when you're there. Uh, choosing these locations because it feels you're very kind of ingrained in the city and within these specific places. A lot of those locations were, were, were actually dictated by Ariel. Yeah. So she had gone with you and she had mm -hmm. kind of showed you sort of what had happened to her in these specific places. Well, I knew most. She didn't have to show them to me because I know New York very well. We both yeah. do. And, I, and she would, in her book, she would give specific addresses and we would, yeah, scope them out and scout them. You're like, okay you know, this, that, and the other, but, but yeah, I mean, we also wanted to choose specific parts of New York. You know, there was times where we would choose places, you know, like when, uh, like for example, when her and the, my character are going through the mail behind the subway grade and the subway comes by and blows all the mail up. That didn't happen in her book. That was in the book. She, they, they go through it in like, you know, behind a bush in New York city somewhere in, in the park, central park somewhere. Um, but you know, the I growing up in New York, a good place to you know get high was always over the you know the 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 stone walls of Central Park if you were uptown because they were so far below and in order for anyone to ever know what was going on you'd have to look down over this thing and it's like a rat you're like a raccoon yeah so we really I really wanted to capture yeah, just, that and just, experience and knowing that uh, behind certain like you can jump over the wall and you know that there's three feet or fifteen feet you know there's it's a very specific, like it, it to me. It's a very known landmark that there's like on eighty second and Central Park West. There's this giant rock, and then there's also this giant fall with the subway grates. But that it only exists in a very small portion, like only a small portion of people know that part of it. I know there's a movie, Cops and Robbers, like it's a, a New York cop movie. I think it's such a New York movie because they know that they can get away because there's a bus stop at 86th Street in the middle of the Crosstown section. Yeah. It's the only place that there's a bus stop <laughs> on that route. And yet they know in the movie that if we get out of the park at 86, we can hop on the bus and then get away. And yeah. it's like, but only somebody from New York would kind of know to do that. But well, that's great sort of understanding that specificity of location yeah. and using it to add more texture to the film yeah. overall. It, there's a, there was a scene we cut where um, it was just something needed to, it was a conversation between her and the Mike character and it just took place on a stoop, but we were walking around for 45 minutes trying to find the exact stoop that it happened on in her writings. And it wasn't, that's not important, but it was important for us to, yeah. to get that exact stoop. 
but uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, the world of drug addiction, people who are immersed in this, living on the streets, specifically in New York City. Uh, I mean, how deep did you guys feel making the film that you were in that world? Because you were also casting people who, some of them were sort of, mm -hmm. had been, had a history in that. You know, again, we wanted, you know, the, we wanted the film to emanate from the initial concept and the, the motions of this movie. And, you know, you can't really, you can't phone this one in, you know what I mean? So, I mean, we wanted to, and I think it was taxing on everybody who made the movie because you were in this, you know, world of flop houses and, and uh, you were in the street and it was like fucking five degrees every single day. It was freezing. Long time, long periods of time, you're outside. Just, so, you I mean, and yes, you're right. Some of the characters were still in that world um, or very closely removed from it. And, uh, I don't know, uh, that, that stuff excites, excited me also because by the time we made that movie, by the, time, by the time we made this movie, I was already very close with a lot of people who I was pulling from the real world. So they knew me as just Josh, not even Josh the filmmaker. So when they showed up on set, like, oh my God, you're a real filmmaker. Like saw the cameras and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, what do you think I was, some fucking bum? And they, <laughs> they laughed at that. Uh, they were like, yeah, I thought you were a bum. <laughs> You know, it's easy to, uh, you know, watching a movie like this and even like work like John Cassavetes, it's easy to say, well, everything is improvised, but it seems like there was a very specific, you, you got these stories from Ariel, mm -hmm. there was a specificity to it, but on the set, was there any improvisation? Yeah, we used improvisation absolutely to develop the dialogue because we did in the script, there were certain scenes that had very specific dialogue. Even times we had documentary scenes that I had shot with the real people that I wanted to use that exact dialogue as the script. And, you know, oftentimes we would have to use improvisation um, in rehearsals and then kind of build out the dialogue based on the way these things roll up. But because most of the stuff happened in real life, yeah. there was like a script always for what had to be said, yeah. who had to be doing what. And oh, that this was very person, helpful. Yeah, this person would always say this no matter what I would say. They, they, would, they would react this way. So that would kind of dictate the response there. But yeah, you want the dialogue to sound as if it's coming from the people who are saying it. So we didn't want to implant a vision of what we thought. We wanted them to kind of come up with it, figure it out, and then by the end of like the third or fourth take, they're saying the same things and then it becomes a script on the set. The know, only scene that saying. I wish we, we didn't use improvisation was, which we shot three times, was the ATM scene. I wish we just had them stick it, to the script. It, but we wouldn't have gotten to where we got, know. you know? It, it, that's what's, it's, it sucks sometimes because sometimes you'll shoot and then you can't get at it. But then finally you nail it and you nail it in such a special way. Was there any uh, plan at all for you guys to have a rehearsal period? Yeah, we always we did always have a rehearsal okay. period. Just because you know, working with non-professionals was that kind of a concern to you as far as remembering lines and no. Lines? I mean, again, we didn't ever put any stress on anyone to memorize lines. We always, I always said to them, do not worry about memorizing lines. And the only time that that became an issue was during the argument with the four bag and the two bag scene. That wasn't um, even about lines. That was about logic. You but know? it was like, also lines. Like you need to say this yeah. line and. and you know, but it was like I'm not. I, but it was like I'm not going to say that line because I don't believe that. Like I would just do it. And it was like it was. It was a logic thing. Like I could say the line, but I don't want to say that line. So it was. It was interesting. You know. Yeah. But um, as far as the way you know, two directors, even brothers, um, you know, how do you work on a set? Is there sort of one person does one set of skills? Yeah, this was was actually interesting because we developed a new technique, which was. You know, because I was working so close, I knew all these people really well. 
you know, as friends, like I was the person giving them their direction. And I was also working with the camera. So I had these two cameras and I was this thing. So I would go and give the direction. Then I would sit, sit with these two cameras. But Benny was running the sound and I had monitors to what he was running. So every time I would go and talk to an actor, he would hear every single thing that I was saying and he had the boom. So then he could oh, lean so in. Oh, so you were actually the sound yeah. person yes. on the film. Okay. So he could lean in and tell me something because I had live monitors. So if he talked into the boom, I could hear that. And he would say, mention this, mention that. Don't forget to give this direction. So I would literally hear it in the middle of talking to one of the actors and I would be able to seamlessly in, include it in my direction. So we really became this kind of like single brain. Yeah. Has your working style changed from film to film? Oh, it, oh, it, yeah. Film to film demands different, you know, oh, you ha you're vibing with that actor. You talk to him. I'm not going to talk to him. It we is. don't want to give someone two diff. We, we never want to be giving yeah, one we'll, actor we'll, two sets of directions because there's no need for it. Redundancy is annoying. Yeah. And also the, the, we never want to, it's like, we'll, we'll talk about the, the overall goal beforehand, you know, and hash out whatever that is on our own. It's that on the day of, it doesn't matter who's saying it, you know, we're comfortable with what's going to happen. Yeah. So there's sort of a, a clear uh, sort of mission statement among the two of you. Yeah. yeah it's unspoken. That. Yeah. Uh, going into the editing process, was there anything that changed for you as far as how you saw the original concept of the film? Yeah. Uh, yes. The thing is, once you, once you go into each phase of the project, you have to go into it with a completely fresh perspective. So yes, there were things that should have happened A, B, C, D, E, D, and you realize, okay, though this this section is meaningless, doesn't work here. It's it's from a different emotional state. This is yeah. So you kind of just reapproach it in a in a new way because you have to because yeah. you're again. It doesn't grow from the outside in, it grows from the inside out. So now here you have this set stuff that doesn't change and you have to kind of make it fit to, you have to fit and match the emotions that you're being, that you're, that you're getting from that image and those scenes. And if somebody's acting here in a way that isn't in line with how they should feel emotionally, then you don't use it. And it's, it's a vicious like kind of thing. You're like, okay, this doesn't work. We're not going to use it. And there's probably there's a lot forty. What do we say? For like forty five minutes of stuff that's good, but just doesn't fit the movie. So and yeah. that just is gone. You know. Yeah, it's sort of the whole is greater than exactly. individual parts. Yeah. In a way. Uh, the electronic music score, I, I really loved a lot. Was that also uh, before you guys started editing? Yeah, had that you was thought a, about that. That was a decision that was kind of made before one scene was cut. It was. We're gonna start with basically Tomita was the the his renditions of Debussy. It was you know we wanted to hint at this kind of Sturmundrang emotional music, uh, you know, and then obviously you think Bach, but we didn't want to do anything classical because this is like a nighttime movie. This is like a movie with a vibe like that, and uh, you know the only way to get to that is like with a synthy score and and uh, you know Debussy is very romantic music. Uh, what are you guys working on right now? By the way. A few films. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually doing like kind of a strangely like an addendum to heaven knows what. Yeah. Should be very exciting. Called awesome. Good Time.